Developments in Timor-Leste, a buoy problem in the South China Sea, and Hun Manet's debut on the world stage. All this and more in today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Jaffa Kitson, and today is October 5th, 2023. On today's show... I think that speaks to a kind of a consensus. It was not just in one prime minister's obsession, but it's a consensus among the very top political group that engaging with Southeast Asia is of primary geostrategic importance. I think that has been building up in this, say, 10 years, I would say. So regardless of who you bring in, I think it's an easier place in Tokyo to convince to bring your leader to Southeast Asia and put your attention to the Southeast Asia. That was Nobuhiro Aizawa, who chatted with Greg Poling and Aline Noor to discuss Japan-ASEAN relations. I'm excited for that interview, as it really showcases how Japan's involvement is just one piece of the complex Indo-Pacific puzzle. First, though, the headlines. Today, to help me read the headlines, we have Angus Lamb in the studio. Angus is an intern here with the CSIS Southeast Asia program. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Javid. Angus, you're from Hong Kong, right? Yep. What do you miss the most about home? I think about home all the time, but it's hard to pin down what exactly it is about Hong Kong that I miss. I mean, the food is my standard answer. Shout out to KFC Mushroom Rice. But it's also the impeccable MTR, the crazy bus uncles, and the off-puttingly bold tourists. Well, we have those here too, just in case. Well, jokes aside, I guess it's the many different people living in this tiny town, all so spirited and outspoken that I really miss the most. I won't say much more than the fact that this isn't quite the case anymore. Ah, fair enough. Well, speaking of small state narratives flying under the radar, let's move on to our first story on ASEAN's soon-to-be newest member, Timor-Leste. Yes. Last week, Timor-Leste formally upgraded its bilateral ties with China to a comprehensive strategic partnership, according to a joint statement released on September 23rd. The agreement includes plans to increase military and infrastructure cooperation, expand bilateral investment, and work together in developing Timor-Leste's lucrative oil and gas reserves. It certainly caught the region off guard, and to many observers, implicates the tiny democratic nation in the ever-escalating U.S.-China competition. The situation worries both the United States and Australia, which, lying just 400 miles away from Timor-Leste, sees the region under its sphere of influence. Indeed. And it makes East Timorese officials' recent comments more concerning. In a recent speech to the UN General Assembly, President Jose Ramos Horta said that the talk of China as a menace was, quote-unquote, unjustified and unfair, and that global China has fueled trade, economic growth, and prosperity in the region. When he was inaugurated as president last year, he pledged to forge closer relations with China with a focus on energy, agriculture, and infrastructure cooperation. Still, some analysts deemed the ominous news headlines surrounding this agreement as overhyped. Right. Some experts believe that Timor-Leste is just trying to leverage better investment deals from Australia, particularly regarding the Greater Sunrise oil and gas field between Australia's northern coast and Timor-Leste. In 2022, President Ramos Horta warned Australia that it would absolutely seek Chinese investment if Canberra failed to back a gas pipeline between the Timor Sea and his country's southern shore. Others highlight that economic development and energy independence are key national objectives of Timor-Leste and that the elevation of bilateral ties only reflects the underdeveloped nation's desire to diversify partners to help achieve these objectives. Complicating the issue, recent parliamentary elections in May resulted in a new government under Prime Minister Zanana Guzma, who might be looking to create an early foreign policy marker that distinguishes him from his predecessors. But are the pessimists right to worry about China-Timor economic cooperation spilling over into a security cooperation? Well, Ramos Horta has downplayed the extent of this spillover and stressed that Australia will remain Timor-Leste's main security partner. 
Also, there is reason to doubt that the revolutionary figures now in charge of the government, with a history of resisting colonizers and invaders, would naively allow China to roll all over them. Sticking to Chinese activities in maritime Southeast Asia, the ongoing spats between China and other claimants in the South China Sea have only continued, specifically with the Philippines. Oh boy, it's been a week indeed. In late September, the Philippines accused the Chinese Coast Guard of placing a floating barrier to prevent Filipino fishermen from entering or working in the area. This incident took place in part of the Scarborough Shoal, a hotspot for incidents like these. Soon after, the floating buoy barrier was removed by the Philippine Coast Guard. Philippine lawmakers emphasized the need to better fund law enforcement operations among the departments tasked with protecting the country's waters. Earlier that same week, the Philippine Coast Guard also released a video of dead coral where two Chinese fishing boats had allegedly been and threatened to take China to an international tribunal for ecological destruction. While the Philippines won cases about the South China Sea before on the international stage, those rulings have proven to be difficult to enforce. It's a tense backdrop for the beginning of a joint naval drill called Sama-Sama, involving the Philippines, the United States, Japan, the UK, Canada, France, and Australia. New Zealand and Indonesia are also present as observers. You know, I'm currently taking Indonesian right now, and I learned Sama in Indonesian means same or you're welcome. So listening to it in this context is kind of confusing. I get that. It means together in Tagalog, which is supposed to showcase the united nature of these drills. Well, speaking of togetherness, Hun Manet, son of Hun Sen, made his debut as Prime Minister of Cambodia at the UN General Assembly last month. Since becoming Prime Minister, he visited China to underscore the strength of the China-Cambodia bilateral relationship. Not only is China a strong economic partner for Cambodia, but it provides quite a bit of support for its ruling family on the international stage. In return, it's often observed that Cambodia can be a voice for the regional superpower within ASEAN. So far, Hun Manet doesn't seem to be deviating too far from his father's path. He continues to reinforce existing relationships while cracking down on opposition leaders. A recent example is Tach Seta, a vice president of the Candlelight Party, the only major opposition party at present. He was convicted and sentenced to 18 months in prison under charges some described as politically motivated. But it's not all roses between China and Cambodia. A Chinese-made film titled No More Bets, a fictionalized story of Chinese workers lured to Cambodia under false pretenses to work in the cyber scam industry, was recently banned. Yeah, Cambodia's government was afraid that it would continue to tarnish the country's international representation, despite the scam operations being deeply linked to the country's ruling elite. Well, 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 so the plot thickens. It'll be interesting to see how the relationship develops under Hun Manet. Yeah, we'll have to keep a close eye on it all. And those are the headlines. Thanks, Angus, for stopping by. Up next, Greg and Alina's interview with Nobuhiro Aizawa, so stay tuned. Welcome back to another episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I am Greg Poling with the Center for Strategic and International Studies, joined by my much more capable co-host, Alina Noor with the Carnegie Endowment. Hey, Alina. Hey, Greg, I don't know about much more capable, but good to see you. <laughs> Thanks. And joining us today is Aizawa Nobuhiro. Nobu is associate professor at Kyushu University, a Southeast Asia specialist, and a participant in the U.S.-Philippine-Japan workshop that I'm helping to organize here in Manila. So he and I are, are in the room together. Alina is stuck back in D.C. joining oh, no. us over Zoom. <laughs> And if that sounds familiar, that's because those who listened two weeks ago know that Aaron Connolly was also at this workshop. So a bit of a time warp here. We actually recorded these about five minutes apart. But okay. you have to listen to it two weeks apart. No, don't give away the secret. Oh, the wonders of technology. So, <laughs> no, but what we wanted to talk to you about, given the topic of this workshop and your own expertise, is Japan's evolving engagement in Southeast Asia. 
And I think it's timely. I was just on the way over here to Manila reading a review by Benjamin Zawaki of Tom Parks' new book about the multipolar nature of engagement in Southeast Asia and how the US and China are also presented as a false dichotomy. Hmm. And if we're thinking about the other medium powers who have space and agency in Southeast Asia, then Japan's clearly top of that list as, yeah, yeah. as the other partner of choice who doesn't always come with the same stink of great power competition. <laughs> because we're not. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, I mean, guess to baseline it, how do you think Tokyo and the Kushida administration are approaching the region overall? What's the general strategy of Japanese engagement in Southeast Asia? Yes. I'm not in a position to say like Japan is the third choice, but from Japan, it's very much Southeast Asia is maybe even the number one choice. We do calculation on, say, prime minister's visit. There's already a three consecutive tour to Southeast Asia as a first stint of overseas. I mean, yeah, Kishida went to Glasgow, actually, but for bilaterals and, and others, uh, Abe, Suga, Kishida went there. Uh, you know, Suga was a prime minister during the COVID, and that was going to Vietnam and Indonesia was the only travel overseas. I think that speaks to a kind of a consensus. It was not just an one prime minister's obsession, but it's a consensus among the very top political group that engaging with Southeast Asia is of primary geostrategic importance. I think that has been building up in this, say, 10 years, I would say. So regardless of who you bring in, I think it's an easier place in Tokyo to convince, to bring your leader to Southeast Asia and put your attention to the Southeast Asia politics. So I think that really speaks. You know, the government is there. And we always think that the corporate was you know, the lead. But I think right now, government is also coupling that you know, commitment. So I think it's a very solid position. You know, I just want to maybe press back a little on that because it's true that Japan is a trusted partner, has been for a really long time in the region. but. At the same time, I think recently, primarily under Kishida's leadership, there seems to be a bit of dissonance, right? So at the political level, it seems as though Japan is moving closer to its treaty allies. But at the same time, it retains this substantive commitment in Southeast Asia. And with the recent announcement, I think, of Japan offering to host a NATO office, it's brought a little bit of concern among some in Southeast Asia. What are Southeast Asians supposed to make of this apparent dissonance? Yes, you're right. So there's these two phases here, right? So you have this security level demand that Japan needs much more commitment with, say, stronger military powers, for example, to be very straightforward. So that's one wing. And the kind of political commitment I was saying is much more of a social and economic wing. So I think there's these two wings in the foreign policy strategy logic that the more the security is of a concern, you have to have more stronger tie with, say, stronger military capable countries. At the same time, because of those security issues, Japan understands relationship with Southeast Asia is much more vital. If you look at the investment to, compared to China, to Southeast Asia, I think that clearly says more going to Southeast Asia. Say Japanese population movement, where do they stay overseas? Of course, US is always at the top, but then come Southeast Asia, and even within the political turmoil situation in Southeast Asia. So I think there is this security dimension too, socioeconomic dimension. So that's the two wing. Let me pull this a little bit more because 
Japan under the Abe government was the originator of the free and open Indo-Pacific concept, mm -hmm. was the driver in large part behind the formation of the Quad, and has embraced this kind of renaissance of bilateral and minilateral alliance engagement in the region. Negotiated the reciprocal access agreement with the UK and Australia, is now doing much more high-level cooperation, military cooperation with the US and Australia. Obviously, the breakthrough with the Koreans, and then also this burgeoning security relationship with the Philippines. Mm. So in a sense, I think from Southeast Asia, Japanese engagement may increasingly look like the kind of two-track engagement that the region has often decried from the U.S., treating the like-minded, especially the Philippines, and to a degree maybe Vietnam and some issues Indonesia, differently mm. or engaging separately while on the second track engaging kind of the region yeah. as a whole. Yeah, yeah. Is that accurate? I mean, do you think that, that Japan increasingly views the like-minded security partners who are also part of the U.S. Alliance Network, i.e. the Philippines, differently than it has historically? I think it's still early to call it that way because Japan with the security cooperation is still new. I think we're still a rookie in that regards with all the new defense agreements that we have. So, I mean, the will is there, but I don't think the capacity is as strong as the accumulated experience that Japan had with the economic cooperation. So I think in the political scene, you have to cheer those security relationship with, of course, with Philippines and Vietnam. And that's, you have to cheer it and you have to signal that's the new arena that Japan can you know, establish on. But if you look at the, you know, in a snapshot right now, it's in a still different level. I think the economic engagement has much more of a stakeholder, much more of a accumulated network. So I think that's where it is at now. So, but I think the will is there. I'm not like 100% sure whether the teaming up is going to build up as fast as we like it. It is a change, but yeah, still that's the where it is. We are. I mean, I think to be fair to Tokyo, Tokyo has departed somewhat from its twin brother in Washington at times, and pretty significantly, I might add. For example, I remember when Japan reached out to Laos and, and Cambodia when uh, Washington was completely disinterested in doing the same thing. And I thought that signaled a real level of sincerity on Tokyo's part to its relationship with Southeast Asia. So even if it wasn't for security reasons, I think just the symbolism of that was pretty important. I think that is very important because I think one of the big diplomatic success of the Kishida administration was the engagement with Cambodia. I think that was where the United States had its domestic reason that they couldn't have enough engagement from the executive office, especially Hume Manet, when he was endorsed by his party to be the next one. I think Japan was the first to reach out. And with all the political risk, I think should have decided to do so. So we don't have the, the sticks. It's not about the carrots and sticks, but we don't have it. So we don't use it. But I think the engagement, especially with Southeast Asia, is a political priority. And I think it has shown, especially when the United States is tied its hand, you know, has been limited its position. I was just going to add that I believe that there was a Japan-Laos summit in the first half of this year as well. You know, something Engagement with Laos is something you rarely hear about. And so I think that's another... You know, well, uh, Prime Minister Abe launched his security 
speech in Laos, you know, that has also, so yeah, it's, Laos is, still has some constituency in, in the Japanese foreign policy community. So, yeah. It's good to hear. No, for years, I think it's fair to say that Japan has been the effective economic partner that Southeast Asian countries wish the U.S. was, whether that's on engagement in trade rules, CPTPP and RCEP, or as a major provider of investment and ODA. Is Japan still able to play that role? Particularly if we think about U.S.-China competition in the region for so long, the alternative to Chinese investment has not been U.S. investment. It's been Japanese investment. It's the only alternative. But Tokyo can't do everything by itself. And in the face of you know the BRI, among other things, we have seen what feels like Tokyo trying to stick its finger in, in the dam in different places in the region, but sometimes being overwhelmed by the sheer scale of Chinese easy money. That's right. That's right. That's so right. I think the Japanese playbook that has been, in a way, successful over like three decades is now a little bit coming to a big change because, as you know, you know the Japanese economy is not as big as it was, and it's not it's the the country that is still struggling. So we can't match scales like a dollar to dollar competition is not in our game. So you know ODA investment if we are to value importance of partnership by those numbers, I think Japan's going to go down. So I think that is a big change. And I think the government also realizes that. So we don't, if you look at what Japan is doing in this year, this is the 50th commemoration anniversary between Japan and Southeast Asia. I think the emphasis is there. Japan's relationship with Southeast Asia is no longer this ODA, FDI-led relationship. But it's much more focused on, say, trade and also human capital development, governance, harmonization. So those kind of more reciprocal relationship is something that Japan is now shifting. And most primarily, Japan is really asking Southeast Asia to come to Japan. So it's not like Japan trying to solve Southeast Asian issues, but we need Southeast Asia to solve Japanese issues. I think that's the, the bigger message. So it's clearly because the economic power as we had before is not there anymore. But still, we want this kind of strong social ties. I think we're now in transformation. I think there's still life left in the Japanese sales, with, particularly with regard to technology, right? I mean, Japan has set up a bunch of capacity building initiatives with regard to cyber governance. As you said, on the technical side, there's a center that is supported by Japan in Bangkok. But also, I think, particularly with aging demographics in Japan, but also in countries in Southeast Asia, there's a lot of really exciting innovation going on in Japan to help resolve some of those issues that older people in Japan are having to go through. And those could be really important lessons for governments in Southeast Asia as well. So I think that might be part of the changing nature of the Japanese relationship with Southeast Asian countries as well. Capacity building, but in a different way, right? Exactly. I think the mindset is different. Capacity building is not like Japanese teaching Southeast Asia, but because like Japanese companies and Japanese society need Southeast Asian to save us, it's not really capacity building where we need to really work together, right? So like even 
companies in Bangkok, for example, they used to send everybody from Tokyo to go there. But no, I don't think that's the model anymore. The headquarters also we require people from the region to run the company because that's where the talent is. And we have to train each other together. So that's what the new corporate culture is building up. But yes, aging society, that's also we can't solve our problem on our own. And hopefully that will be the kind of standard for other countries in Southeast Asia to have some benefit from. So, yeah, it's a very new style of creating relationship. Nobu, one of the answers to this issue of shrinking capacity, or at least shrinking relative capacity vis-a-vis yeah. China, has been the revision of Japan's official development assistance guidelines mm. to focus more on, I guess, what Tokyo calls strategic mm. projects. We've heard of this talked about in the context of Subic, for instance, in the big Japanese master plan for development of the Subic Bay Freeport here in the Philippines. But can you walk us through what exactly Japan means by refocusing more on strategic ODA projects? I mean, of course, ODA has to be justified to our people. And the first reason was Japan's pretty much contribution to the public goods of the global community. So that was number one. And also number two, it has to be demand base. So the principle was, despite of the practice, the principle was that you know, Southeast Asia has to demand and then Japan will accept that demand. But now when, as Greg said, you know, more strategic is more of a supply-led type of ODA. So we want to offer, it could be the starting point of the whole process of ODA. This is a big change. Of course, some people will say, no, we, we did it that way since the beginning, but still to have that change of principle gives signaling a different signal to the public that we are making a selection based on our own, say, national interest. So the interesting thing is if you do the public polling, why ODA is needed or why do we have to spend for ODA when Japanese society is you know, having difficulty in its social welfare? One of the things that strikes me was they talk about a lot about energy. So Japan's strategic understanding within the public is very much centered on energy and to have a resilient energy supply. I think that's where public agreement is strong, why we need to spend ODA. So that kind of understanding supports the kind of strategic meaning energy supply, security, resilience, those choices rather than say humanitarian and other issues that were at the forefront of the definition of ODA. I think this kind of speaks to what we talked about earlier on, right? This kind of duality of Japanese engagement, the more security-related strategic angle to Japanese approaches to Southeast Asia. And it seems as if I'm hearing that kind of the socio, at least the socio part of the socioeconomic equation is going to be diminished with these ODA guidelines. Is that right, Nobu? I think it's the other way around. I think Japan is worrying about those basic infrastructure crisis as Japan being separated from the other countries. So to keep our relationship, to keep Japan open and to keep the kind of social interaction with the region, I think that the security is needed. So in the end, you know, the security emphasis is because precisely because the connectivity with the region is important. 
I think this is especially because our experience with South Korea and China too. You know, our, we had a very strong social ties with South Korea and China, but when political issue comes to its front, that engagement could be really undermined. So these kind of political security issue is now understood more stronger among the public. So I think that's where the understanding comes. So in the end, in Japan, because of the shrinking population, Japan's population do understand our social connection is paramount. And that's exactly why we need more political security commitment. So it'd be interesting, Nobu, to hear responses from the region or recipient countries to this ODA based on the new guidelines, because I'm not sure that Southeast Asians are going to be too thrilled about socioeconomic relations being premised on security, but I guess that's just the way it is nowadays. Yeah, that's another homework for you know the Japanese government too. Putting strategic words of strategic is, is not about kind of narrowing the commitment. So I think that is a very important point. Yeah, we'll definitely take that. All right, we're going to have to leave it there for this week. Nobu, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. And Aline and I will be back in two weeks with another episode of Southeast Asia Radio. See you soon. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Feel free to write us with any comments, questions, or feedback at searadio at csis.org, and we'll be sure to answer any burning questions you might have. Do us a favor and subscribe and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. Tell your friends about us. Marla Hiller is our producer and our interns are Yume Lin and Angus Lam. Our co-hosts today were Greg Poling and Alina Noor. My name is Jafet Kitsan. And I'm Angus Lam. And we'll see you in two weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio.